Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 20. If you don't know what we do, we teach through the Bible. We think that God has given us scripture for a purpose. It renews minds. It grounds us in a big story that we get to be involved in. So we put a high, high premium on the teaching of God's word. So Wednesday, we teach through the Bible. We'll be back in this little room here uh, during the summer. And then Sundays, we kind of grab an idea out of what we will be teaching into on Wednesday. So uh, Genesis 20, Jesus, again, we give you thanks for wanting to instruct us as your people. We give you thanks that there are many in our city, many in our county that love you, that live for you. Many in our city that continue to see you do miracles in families and in marriages and in kids and in addicts and in brokenness. And so we pray, Lord, that this day you would, in each of us, be equipping us to be better at seeing your kingdom built in our city. So may we have ears to hear. May we be able to integrate our lives into the reality of what your scripture reveals to us. So help us in that. Speak. May we listen and may we be obedient to you, our King. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So Genesis 20, uh, to introduce the idea, uh, quite a number of years ago, one of my children who will remain unnamed uh, had this issue uh, that a lot of kids have. She was very young and she would pick her nose and then she would enjoy the fruit of her labors, right? <laughs> so that's not something that you want to see as a parent and it's not something that you want her to do around other people. So we immediately began to try to help her stop this thing. And it started with conversations like, hey, you know, do you really want your friends to see this, et cetera? So we got her to agree that like, that was not a good behavior. And that's like, that was step one for us. And then there was a day she'd agreed, yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. But there was a day that my wife was looking for her and was like, where is she at? Well, she went over and looked behind the couch and there was this daughter there digging and enjoying. And so my wife says, sweetie, we've talked. You agreed that you didn't want to do this anymore. What's happened? This was her answer. And I quote, she said, I can't stop. It's my lunch. <laughs> okay. So Genesis 20 totally fits in with that. There are things in life that we, like my little daughter, do the same thing. Not, not that, hopefully not that, but there are things that we say, I can't stop this because fill in the blank, right? Because of my upbringing, because of my personality, because of this, just the way I am. I can't stop this because we call those habits. We call it habitual sins. And many, many of us know what that's like. And so we have in Genesis, we're going to study this guy 
named Abraham. Some people call him Father Abraham. Great father, great Father's Day message from him that we're gonna see, hmm, he's kind of like that, all right? So let's jump in and here's my hope to kind of look at the anatomy of sin, kind of what it does, uh, look at a lot of times what we do personally with sin and then how do we break habits that are bad? So that's my hope. We'll see if the weather cooperates. So verse one, chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev. This is the desert. And lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned to Gerar. Now he heads over towards the coast now. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Does that ring a bell in anyone's brain? <laughs> Does it seem like, didn't we just read this story? You did in Genesis 12. Because in Genesis 12, Abraham, then Abram and Sarah do the same exact thing. In fact, verse 13, we'll get there, tells us it's their habit. It's their MO. It's what they do, right? So you see now there's this habitual sin that Abraham and Sarah are in for 25 years. Thank God none of us are like Abraham. Right? Some people think this is just a repetition of that first story. When people say that to me, I ask them, do you understand human nature? Do you understand yourself? Are you kidding? How many people do you know that are stuck in cycles of sin? I know tons of them. Just read the Bible over and over. What you see is people stuck in these cycles that they can't seem to break. They create a golden calf in Exodus. And then you just go a couple of chapters more. They create another golden calf. It's like you see the cycle. I know people that are stuck in fear and anxiety and laziness and addiction and unforgiveness and bitterness and pornography and you name it. And they can't seem to break it. I just say, are you kidding me? Of course, he's going to do it twice. Of course, because it's human nature. It's what I love about scripture. The heroes of the Bible always have clay feet. There's no hero in the Bible except for Jesus that you don't see the warts and all, right? Peter denies Jesus three times. Moses loses his temper. Abraham lies about his wife, right? Noah gets drunk in his tent and does something really weird. David murders and commits adultery and then lies about it, right? And people say to me, Matt, I just wouldn't fit in church. I'm like, really? <laughs> Dude, if you read the Bible, you will fit perfectly, man. <laughs> You're all those things. Give me a break. <laughs> so here's how this thing starts. You have this habitual sin, all right? So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at this, what happens now with this sin. I want you to notice a couple things. Number one is this. Sin is a vacuum. It'll suck others into your trash. Look at verse three. But God came to Abimelech. Abimelech is probably a title. It means uh, father king or my, king is, or my father is the king, something like that. No one's quite sure. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. 
Would that be a nightmare or what? I'm killing you because the woman whom you have taken, she is a man's wife. What a bummer. Here you have this guy that's just doing what kings did at that time. Nothing abnormal, nothing weird. It's what they all did. It was culturally acceptable, right? They have lied to him about it. And now he's gonna be killed by God for it. Oh, what a bummer. That's sin. Sin is like a vacuum. It always sucks other people into your trash. I say it like this, that sin, it's like a hand grenade. The moment you pull the pin on it, all the bystanders around you are gonna get hit by your sin. It's a bummer. I talked to parents whose kids have made decisions to do drugs. They pulled the pin on that one. And that mom and that dad are crushed by that decision. Crushed by it. Not their decision, someone else's. I talked to people that look at porn and they're like, listen, it's a, it's a private sin, it's just my sin. I said, listen to me, buddy. When you look at that, when you view that, what you're doing, you're doing two things. You're putting money in the coffers of people and organizations that will go and exploit children all over our world. The innocent children are being exploited by that. And number two, you're, put, you're fueling the mind that then goes and exploits those kids. It's not a private sin. It becomes part of the same problem, right? My dad, he's an alcoholic. Did I make that choice for him? No. Did that affect me and my siblings? Oh my goodness. My two siblings that are still alive are just still to this day traumatized by it. My older brother could never heal from those wounds of abandonment that at 36, he died. Oh yeah, it's pulling a pin and the people around us get hurt. Here's the saddest part. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac marries this beautiful bride named Rebecca. And in Genesis 26, guess what Isaac does to Rebecca? He goes to a king, tells that king, she is not my wife, she is my sister. And she is taken into his harem. Exactly what Abraham did. Dads, your sons are gonna be photocopies of you. That is both encouraging and frightening. It's both encouraging and frightening. Be, be aware of this. Sin is a vacuum and it sucks other people into our trash. So right here, Abimelech, because of no reason at all, integrity, good dude, is now being trashed because of Abraham's sin. So number one, sin sucks people into your trash. Number two, Sin trashes your testimony. L listen to these verses. Verse four. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. That's a kind way of saying what you know it's saying. So he said, Lord, how will you kill an innocent people? Did not he himself say to me, she is my sister. And she herself said, he is my brother. They're in collusion. In the integrity of my heart, and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. You can read verses 17 and the end of this chapter, how he did that. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. How amazing is this? Abraham, lying, yellow-bellied Abraham is called what? By God. First time the word prophet is used in the Bible. 
for a lying, yellow-bellied Abraham. That's amazing to me. <laughs> so he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all yours. So, verse eight, Abimelech rose early in the morning. I bet he did. <laughs> I need to take care of this, man. I don't want to die. And he called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. I bet they were. <laughs> then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? <laughs> That's a rebuke. You have a pagan king talking to Abraham, the chosen vessel of God, rebuking him and saying, dude, what in the world is wrong with you? How could you have done this to me? You know this is wrong. Abimelech had a better moral compass than Abraham did. Abimelech the pagan. We'll talk about that on Wednesday. That's amazing to me, right? Listen, this is Matt Heverly's opinion. When it comes to the church in the 21st century, the greatest threat to the church is not atheism. It's not agnosticism. It's not liberalism. The greatest threat to the church in the 21st century is hypocriticism or hypocritism, I should say. It's over here having righteous moral thing on this one spot and then over here being completely different. It's being a hypocrite. That to me is the greatest threat to the church in the 21st century. The grainness, the inconsistency of believers. I talk to young people, this next generation. And man, it comes up in almost every conversation. Sometimes about mom and dad. My mom and my dad preached a good preach. But man, the way they walked it out in daily life was totally different. It did not matter. The gospel didn't change us. We just, it was word only. And they're done. The greatest threat is what Abraham's doing right here. Inconsistent, gray Christianity. Jesus actually addresses this to a church. I'll read it for you. It's Revelation chapter three. He says this, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. You're inconsistent, you're gray. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Listen to what he says then. For you say, your words say this, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You're saying one thing, but you actually are something very, very different. So Jesus comes and assesses the health of a church. If Jesus showed up here, what would his assessment be of Edgewater? Hot, cold, lukewarm. What, you say you preach good preaching, but man, the practice over here just isn't, what, what would he say? If Jesus came and assessed me and my family, what would he say to me? 
Assessment is really healthy. I have an assessment of a hero who went to a church once. And I read the interview after the assessment and it just kind of cracked me up. The guy's name is Brother Andrew. You guys know who Brother Andrew is? Okay, if you've read God Smuggler, Brother Andrew was this guy in the 60s and 70s and 80s who would smuggle Bibles behind the Iron Curtain in the USSR, right? You, you got in big trouble for doing that. So he just has these incredible stories for doing it. Just a man of faith. You know how I know he's a man of faith? Because the vehicle he drove to do it in. A 1957 Volkswagen Bug. I mean, that's great faith. <laughs> Things gonna blow up, you're gonna get pulled over by the cops, you're gonna be like, what are all these Bibles here in this car? Like, that's faith, man. They still do it. They had this, the biggest smuggling of Bibles that has happened in history was just a short while ago into China because China is anti-God, atheism, communism. And it was called Operation Pearl. They took this boat up to this barge. They submerged the barge and they pulled it through a river right by a naval academy. <laughs> and then they lifted it up. It had 1 million Bibles in it. Yeah, they're still doing it. It's called Open Doors Ministry. Just brilliant work, All right? So Brother Andrew, he's a European but here's an interview he gives after he gets this, after he talks to this church. So, quote, I have been at Rick Warren's church. They gave me a special award for being old and still following Jesus. <laughs> How awesome is that? We're going to have that here from now on. Here's an old follower of Jesus. It'll be a toupee. <laughs> I just made that up. So bad. Can you think of that? So I got up for the big thank you. And I said something like, you Americans are crazy. <laughs> How can you reward an old man for still following Jesus? All he wants to do is go to heaven and make it. You don't have to reward him in the world. Instead of rewarding an old man who still follows Christ... You should punish all the rich people in your church who spend all their money on bigger boats, bigger this, that, and the other. That should be the system. But don't reward an old man who is near eternity because he still follows Jesus. It's the calling of us all. What's your problem? <laughs> and then he finishes, he goes, well, frankly, they've never invited me back. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> You should have expected that, buddy. That's an assessment of a church. The assessment in Revelation. He guys say this, but you're not doing it. What's the assessment of my life? Because hypocritism kills our testimony. It happens to Abraham right here, getting rebuked by this pagan. So I have a saying, and the saying is this. A bad man's example has no power over a good man. But a good man's bad example does untold evil, right? A bad man's bad example, it's what you expect. No one's getting mad at Hugh Hefner for doing his evil because you expect it from him. But a pastor that does just things that are much less bad, oh my goodness, the untold trauma that happens in the body of Christ from that. So Abraham here, his bad example, trashes, trashes the kingdom, all right? So then here's the worst part of this. Listen to Abraham's response. He's just been rebuked by this king. How should he respond to this? 
Listen to what he does. It's unbelievable. Here's the worst part about sin. It's this. Sin can always make sense. Sin can always make sense. Listen now to what Abram, Abraham says. Verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought. You should underline that phrase. I did it because I thought, not God's word, not morals dictate. I did it because I thought. There is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister and the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to where we come, say of me, he is my brother. Oh, it's so brilliant. My goodness. Abraham's response is brilliantly bad, right? Number one, he says this, I thought, I reasoned it out. I kind of made some decisions. I thought about it. And this is what I have to do. I have no choice, right? Why? Because he was judgmental against those people, right? He was judgmental and fearful. I had to do this because if I didn't do this, man, my life would stink. And so now we're gonna live this way for a long time. We're gonna live in this habitual sin because I've thought it out, I've reasoned it out, and this is the only way to live life. And then next, what he does is this. It's awesome. It's verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Right? What's that called? Justification. I'm justifying it. Hey, she's my half-sister. And back then, that, that was common. You could do that. But I'm not gonna tell that she's become my wife. I'm gonna hide that information, wrong implication. I'm implying she's not my wife. It's a lie. Every one of us has in our brain a spin doctor that will look at the way we live life and we will spin it in such a way that we look pretty good. So he's been doing this, verse 13 tells us, for 25 years. And guess what? Now he believes it. Hey, she is my sister. I'm, come on. I deal with this all the time. Husbands that commit adultery. Well, you understand, Matt. My wife stopped being intimate with me. Oh, so then it's okay? Wives that do the same thing. You understand, my husband is no longer complimenting me. Oh, so it's okay. I have a guy that I always deal with on taxes. And he's always, well, I'm, you know, I'm not paying those taxes because I don't like the way the government pays, uses my money. I'm like, come on, buddy. You just want the money. If you said that, I at least would be like, okay, that's fine. But now you're trying to justify the reason why you won't obey, like First Corinthians or Romans 13 tells us, won't obey the laws of the land. No. Students, you don't understand, Matt, the way it is today, everybody cheats. In order for me to keep up in my school, I have to cheat as well. Okay, you justify. We'll even rename sins now. Like I'm not greedy, I'm a good steward. I'm not bitter. I have righteous indignation against that person, right? 
I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. We want to re- we all have this brilliant spin doctor that will make things look better for us, right? I just go on and on on this, but look, I don't have time. Verse 13, look at this, this is awesome. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, what did he just do right there? It's God's fault. God's made me do this. Listen, if I could have just stayed in Ur of the Chaldees, I would never have to lie this way. It's God's fault. No, you're yellow bellied and you're afraid and you're justifying and you're blaming. And then the last one is so bad and it happens often in marriages. Look what he does to his wife. He says to her, this is the kindness you must do for me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. He manipulates his own wife. Listen, this is how you show you love me. When we go to these places, lie and get sucked into another man's harem. That's how you'll show you love me. I call that spousal blackmail. And it happens so often in marriages and it's totally wrong. Listen, honey, this is the way you show you love me. Really? Because there's no good answer for that spouse. You're blackmailing them and you're putting them in a compromised position, especially when it deals with sin. Listen, this is how you show you love me. And if you don't do that, then you guess you don't love me. Spousal blackmail. Don't ever do it, it's bogus. What Sarah should have said back to Abraham is this. This is how you show you love me. You defend my honor and you defend me with your own life. That's what she should have said. Spousal blackmail. Like, it's such a brilliant, brilliant way because here's why. When I look at this passage, it's a mirror for me. I do the same things. You do too. So how in the world do we come a, become a kind of people that are able to break out of these cycles. This one's 25 years for them, verse 13. This is what we did in every city we came to. Here's my thinking on it. They had done this hundreds of times in 25 years. They got busted for it twice. Genesis 12, Genesis 20. But it had been their pattern. That's what he says. Everywhere we go, we do this. Everywhere we go, we lie. Everywhere we go, we're lying. We're just doing this. And it becomes a habitual sin. I have to because. So how do we as a people that want to pursue Jesus, break out of habitual sins that we know are a bummer. The Bible gives us one tool. It's called repentance. And most believers don't know how to repent because we think we already know how to repent. So we never really look at what it means to repent. So that's what we're gonna do today. I'll do it as quick as I can. I know it's getting hot, but please pay attention to this. So turn with me to Psalm 51 because Psalm 51 is this. It is a manual on real repentance. So here's the story. David, King David, commits adultery, kills the husband, lies about it. And this guy named Nathan, his pastor kind of prophet comes, confronts David in that sin. And then David confesses. And then he writes Psalm 51 about his confession. Be real careful if you're sitting here right now thinking, I don't need repentance because it's King David. King David, after he'd been ruling for about 20 years, after he had killed Goliath, after he'd written 50 plus of the Psalms, God's word, he falls and he needs repentance. Peter would put it like this. God resists the proud, 
but it gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Have the humility to know, I'll need this one day. I'll need to repent too, okay? So I'll do this as quick as I can. I see three legs to real repentance. Psalm 51. Verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Did you notice anything in those three verses? (laughs) Okay, number one, in the mind, you own it. True confession begins with, in your mind, you own it. I did this because I wanted to do this, period. Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, everyone does what they most want to do. When you're faced with two choices, you do what you most want to do. But man, I got robbed and the guy wanted my wallet. I didn't want to give him my wallet. Yes, you did. You were faced with two choices. Give him the wallet, get shot by a bullet. I'll give you my wallet. You did in that situation what you most wanted to do, right? David is saying, I did what I most wanted to do. People will tell me, man, I had to lie to keep my job. Okay, great. You had two choices. Either maintain your integrity and your honesty and lose your job or lose your integrity and your honesty and keep your job. And you chose what you most wanted to do. Everyone does that. We do it all the time. David here owns up to his sin. I did what I most wanted to do. And that justification, I lied because I had to keep my job. That justification leads to all kinds of horror in our world. Do you know that? Read the interviews that were done after World War II with the guards of Auschwitz. Many of them said this, I knew the gassing of children was wrong, but I was afraid if I did not gas these kids, it would be me in that chamber instead. Oh, you can, you can go horrific with that. It begins, true confession begins with, in your mind, I own this thing. David, I sinned. It wasn't Bathsheba, you should have put on more clothes. She shouldn't have wore that short skirt. You're right, you should have gone home. You should have been a better husband. I got this pressure as king. You don't understand how hard it is. He does none of that. My, me, my, my, my. That is step one. It is not what Abraham does, is it? It is not what Abraham does. Abraham does the exact opposite. Manipulates, justifies, blames. David does none of that. Number one confession or number one repentance is in your mind, you own it. This is nobody's fault, but mine. I had choices, yes, and I chose this. Number two of repentance, just going on. Again, verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Number two, number two is with your mouth, you confess it. So what David does right here is this. Second part of verse four, I have done what is evil in your sight. God gets to decide what is good and what is evil. Abraham in our story 
He got to decide. I thought about it. I didn't pray about it. I didn't ask God about it. I decided what was right or wrong. Do you know that is our world today? There is no longer this, hey, God is right and he decides what is morally correct and what is morally incorrect. Now it is, I, individual, get to decide what is right or wrong for me. If I feel this way, if I like that, if I don't like that, now it's subjective and it's relative to me and my circumstances and where I'm at. That's not confession. That's not number two. Confession is this, the, the New Testament word is homo legeo. Homo means same, legeo means language. Confession is this, I'm agreeing with God, this is wrong on your side. And you get to, you get to set the standard, period. That's number two. Mind you own it, mouth you confess it. Thirdly, you gotta get to the heart of it. So look at verse four, five, and six. Against you and you only have I sinned, verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secrets of my heart. It's the heart. So you have this little phrase in verse four that's crazy. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned. What about the dead dude? What about Bathsheba? Didn't you sin against them? Why does David here say, ultimately, I sinned only against God? I'll give you the reason why. And here's the insulation against sin. Before David ever committed physical adultery against Bathsheba and Uriah, he committed spiritual adultery against God. That's what he did. As a believer, this is only for believers in here. The only way a believer can sin freely is if we assassinate God's character. God either has to become not good or not holy. So if you look at Genesis chapter three, the serpent comes and makes God not good. Hey, Eve, if you could only eat of this fruit, you'd be happy. You'd be like, God, your life would be perfect. God's holding out on you. He's not a good God. He's a bad God. You have to either assassinate the goodness of God, which happens so often. You talk to teens, girls especially. Why can't I have sex before marriage? What's the big deal? It's a fruit. It's waiting for me. If I could only have this. And I just turn them on to resource after resource after resource that shows it destroys you. Right? It's the same lie. God's not good. He's holding out on you. Or God doesn't really care about holiness. What God cares about is you being happy. And your marriage right now doesn't make you happy. So just get rid of your marriage. Your job doesn't make you happy. So just get rid of that. It's the, one of the two. So David here, he's getting to the heart of it. He says, I have to get back. Verse one is, I have to get back to your steadfast love and your abounding mercy. I need to go back to who you are. I need to get my life right with you so that spiritually, spiritually, I stop committing adultery to you. I stop looking for love in all the wrong places and find it back with you. So the New Testament says this, keep yourself in the love of God. Over and over, we have to go back to God is good and God is generous. That is the protection against sin. It protects me, it protects you. Over and over, we need to quote to ourselves Romans 8.32, that if God spared not his only son, but delivered him up on our behalf, how shall he not with him give us all good things? God is good. God is good. And then here's what I love. David 
could care less about the consequences of his sins. He could care less about who finds out about his sin, right? He writes a Psalm about it. Could you imagine that? If a worship leader came up here and said, hey, we got a new song for you today. It's a song of personal sin, my own. Join in when you get the tune. You'd be like, that is crazy. Here's the king of Israel being open and honest about his sin. You know why he could care less about the consequences or who found out about his sin? Because what broke his heart was this. I hurt my heavenly father. I hurt Jesus. I know when someone has truly repented, when they could care less about the consequences and their heart is actually broken with, I hurt Jesus. I hurt his kingdom. I've trashed my testimony. I've hurt other people. They're not like, oh no, it's, oh, that weighs me down. That's broken in my heart. That's true, true repentance. It's awesome. And then look what happens to him. Just read the rest of this Psalm. I don't have time. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing heart. Verse 13, then I will teach your ways and sinners will return to you. Verse 15, I'll open my lips. I'll declare your praises. On and on and on and on he goes. He's restored. He has mission again. He has purpose. He's in the kingdom. He's working again. That's what real repentance does. And David never commits adultery and never murders again. So it's, it's as if he's cleansed. He does have a clean heart. He does have a right spirit. He's transformed. The way you and I, as believers, break habitual sin is learning Psalm 51, real repentance. It works. It's worked in my life. It's what I turn to now when I see these patterns in my own life and say, I don't want to be that way. I'm not making excuses for it. I'm owning it in my mind. I'm confessing it with my mouth. And I'm getting back to God being good and generous and his way being the right way. And over and over, I found there's great power in that. So if you're here today and you're saying, I need real repentance. Here's what we do outside. Inside, we do communion every single Sunday. Outside, we do baptisms every single Sunday. And if you read the birth of the church, here's what they say. They say two things. They say, repent, which we just talked about, and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Change your mind about God, essentially. Remind yourself that he's good and generous. And then the outward sign of that is baptism. Does baptism save you? No, but it's absolutely commanded of you and commanded of me. So maybe today is your day where you say, I want to be baptized. I want to be cleansed in that way. I want a clean heart and a new mind. I want to have restored to me the joy of my salvation. I want to be back on mission teaching people like David. Then we make that offer. We don't pressure you. We feel that it's a move of God's spirit, but we want to always offer the opportunity. So I'll pray. Go your way. Enjoy this beautiful Father's Day. Practice real repentance. Don't be like Abraham, be like David. And if you need to, come get baptized today. So Jesus... I pray for those in here that are like me, that see in Abraham a mirror of themselves. 
doing the exact same things. In collusion to sin, manipulating our spouses, justifying our own behaviors, painting them pretty when they're ugly and disgusting. Blaming you, blaming others. Oh, forgive me, cleanse me, create in me a clean heart. May we learn from David this day with our minds to own it, with our mouths to confess it, and with our hearts to get back to you. And may you cleanse us and restore to us joy. I pray for those in here that need to be baptized this day. I pray that you would do what only you can do in these waters. You would take us and set us apart for your kingdom and for your glory, that you grab a hold of our hearts, that this kindling that's been stacked around us for years with friends and family would be ignited by your spirit and we'd live lives on fire. To so do that work, I pray for those that need it. For the rest of us, as we go this day, may we love you and love people. And I ask this in your name, amen.